Amen. So for those of you who have been with us the last several weeks, you know that we have been in a series on the distinctives, church distinctives, some things that are specialized, I guess for lack of a better word, about our church and even other churches that would hold to these things. So if you were here week one, you know we talked about church leadership and what that means according to what we see in the text, the position of elders, their duties and responsibilities. Uh, then week two, we talked about the congregation's authority. What, does, what do members of the church do? What is their duty and responsibility? Uh, week three, we talked about the ever-so-popular topic of church discipline. Um, what to do with a brother or sister who is in unrepentant sin? How do we approach them? How do we reconcile? What does the Word of God say about church discipline? And if you were here last week, Pastor Tyler did a wonderful job of walking us through Understanding the Lord's Supper, the beautiful sacrament that God has given to us, how do we partake in the Lord's Supper appropriately? What does it represent? So if you've been here throughout that series, this has been a wonderful study thus far. I would encourage anyone who maybe has missed some of those sermons to go back and listen to them in your time. It's really helpful in understanding why we do the things that we do here with Christ's Covenant Fellowship. But I would also encourage you, if you look on this table back here, there are several books in the Church Basic series that help to offer further understanding on these distinctives. So this morning, I have the task of preaching on the topic of baptism. Now, baptism is one of the two ordinances that God has given to his people and to the church, obviously the other one being the Lord's Supper. Now, it's important for us to have a proper understanding of baptism. See, there's often been a lot of confusion surrounding this topic over the years. What does baptism mean? What's the right way to do it? Who participates in it? How do we do this? What does it represent? So to begin this conversation about baptism and understanding what it, what it is, I want to look to our statement of faith. So for those of you who may not know, we're a confessional church, so we hold to a certain confession. Ours is the, uh, we hold to the 1853 New Hampshire, New Hampshire Confession. And the confession is simply a collection of statements or articles on certain theological perspectives, certain theological issues. And if we, as we hold to this confession, this is, uh, sets up or establishes guardrails in which we will operate. This is basically a statement that says what we believe. So listen, if you're here visiting with us for the first time, or maybe you've been a couple of times, I would encourage you to do the research. You can go to our website, ccfva.org, and you can find our statement of faith. These are the things that we would affirm. These are the things that we believe. So according to this statement of faith, to this confession, what does it say about baptism? Well, Article 14 says this, and this article is really on uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, but I want to read the section that specifically pertains to baptism. And this is what it says. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a solemn and beautiful emblem that declares our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, as well as our union with him in death to sin and resurrection, to a new life. Baptism is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and the Lord's Supper. Now, I know that is a bit of a lengthy statement and for good reason, but I think it's a helpful and even more importantly, a biblical statement. 
So what I want to do is kind of look at this statement and build upon it a foundation based upon what we see in God's word. So what I want to do is take this statement of faith and kind of put the text underneath it. Right? We have to understand that if we're the people of God, the word of God should be primary. Amen? Right? Confessions are great. They're wonderful. But what does the text say? So that's what I want to do. I want to build a case for our statement of faith based on what we see in the word of God, because ultimately God's word is what should govern us as God's people. So I want to take this in three sections. There are essentially three questions that I have, and I'll give an answer for each question. Okay, so let's begin. So the first question would be, what does it mean? What does baptism mean? And here's how I would answer that question. Baptism is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the union that believers have with him. I'll say that again. Baptism is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the union that believers have with him. So again, as we begin this conversation about baptism, it's incredibly important that we have the right understanding of this sacrament. And I want to say this right off the bat. I want to be clear about this point. Listen, baptism is not salvific. It has no power to save. And there's been some confusion about this over the years, some disagreement within the church surrounding this topic. And there are those who will argue that baptism is necessary to be justified before the Lord. And what they'll do is they'll use certain texts to point to this reality or what they believe to be a biblical reality. So they'll look at texts like Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and they'll use that to support their argument. And this is a pretty familiar text, right? It's the text where Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and a lot of people come to believe. And I just want to look at that quickly. You don't have to turn there. But uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38 says this. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, certain individuals, they'll take a text like that, and they'll say, see, Peter tells them that they must repent, right, that we must look to Jesus in faith and be baptized. So they'll take that statement together, and they'll say, see, you got to turn to Jesus, but you also have to be baptized in order to receive the forgiveness of sins, and I don't believe that's the message that the Bible teaches us. In fact, I don't think that's even what Peter believed. I don't think that's what Peter was teaching. So quickly, I want to look elsewhere at what Peter says, the apostle Peter says. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter says there's salvation only in the name of Jesus. Salvation is only found in Christ. It's not found in tradition. It's not found in rituals or external events. Salvation is found in Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Peter says this, To him all the prophets bear witness. Who's the him? The him is Jesus. He says to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. So he's pointing to belief here. He says we receive forgiveness of sins. We are saved 
through belief in Jesus. Even in 1 Peter chapter 3, 21, this is an interesting verse here. It says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse can be a little bit confusing. And this is a verse that uh, uh, people will also use to try to point to what they believe is the saving nature of salvation. So what Peter is doing here is he's making a comparison between Noah and his family and uh, the safety they had in the ark as God brought them safely through the waters of the flood. And he's comparing it to baptism here. And again, this text trips people up because Peter says baptism now saves you. Right? So doesn't that seem to be a bit of a contradiction here? What is Peter actually communicating? Well, it seems as though Peter was aware that his words could be dangerously misleading, so he wants to qualify them or clarify them immediately. And that's why he says this. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, that's key to interpreting and understanding this text. Peter's not saying that baptism saves. He's not saying that there's any power in the water to cleanse you of your sins. He's saying in and so far as, as, as baptism is a plea to God, uh, looking to Christ in faith, it saves. It's no saving power in the act itself. It's all in faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are we, are we good there? Are we we're tra tracking together? We're okay? All right. I just want to make sure. So Peter's clear here. He says salvation, forgiveness of sins is found only in Christ. That is the only way a man can be saved through faith in Jesus. See, this is why it pays to study the whole of the scriptures, to understand the full context of what God says about a theological reality, rather than just isolating a text. Let's read all of what God says about this particular subject. So we understand that there is no salvation found through the act of baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through any other external activity or event that you could conjure up. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that saves. See, we don't baptize people so that they're justified before God. And that only happens through faith. So then what is the purpose of baptism? Why do we do it? And what does it represent? So let's first talk about what baptism represents. And again, if we look to our statement of faith, it says this, that baptism declares our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior, as well as our union with him in death to sin and resurrection to a new life. So what is baptism? Baptism is simply a public declaration of faith that we have in Christ Jesus, but it also demonstrates the union that believers have with Christ Jesus because of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So again, I told you I want to build a case for this based on what the text says. So where do we see that in the text? If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 3 and 4. I'll give you a second to get there. <clears throat> 
Romans chapter 6, look at verses 3 and 4, and this is what the Apostle Paul writes, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may have a different version, and that's okay. He writes this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the magnificent truth of what baptism represents. You see here the Apostle Paul is pointing toward a greater reality of what baptism actually means. You see, just as Christ died and was buried in the tomb, we too have died to sin and to our old lives, to the old self, to the life of flesh and sin. And just as Jesus on the third day was raised from the grave, we too, by looking to him in faith, have been raised to this new life of abundant freedom and forgiveness, a redeemed life in Jesus Christ. See, that's the imagery that Paul paints for us here is a death, a burial, a resurrection. And that's essentially what baptism represents. You see, it's simply an outward expression of an inward transformation. It's how we publicly declare that we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, that we've turned to him in faith. And this demonstrates this wonderful union that we have with Christ Jesus. What a wonderful and glorious reality that is this morning to have union and fellowship with Christ Jesus. Amen belongs right there. Right? Praise God for that. Praise God for that reality this morning. This is what Paul is trying to communicate here. He's directing our attention toward this glorious truth of the gospel. See, baptism is simply a visual demonstration of the gospel. That's what it is. It's showing others the salvation, the saving work of Jesus Christ, how he takes lost sinners and redeems them and gives them new and abundant eternal life. That's what this represents. We know that Paul is not preaching salvation in baptism. We know that about Paul. How do we know? Because if you read the book of Romans, you know Paul spends a great portion of that pointing to justification by faith alone. So why would he then contradict himself and say that you must be baptized into Christ to be saved and that baptism is salvific? That's not what Paul is saying. Again, it pays to read the greater context of the scriptures rather than taking one verse and simply isolating it. Paul is pointing to the great reality of what baptism actually means. And before we move on from the meaning, I think it's important to address something else here, and we'll talk about the mode of baptism briefly. Right in our statement of faith, it says we baptize what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three, right? There are those who would dispute that and say, oh, well, there are other texts where you see that the disciples in the New Testament and in the book of Acts, they baptize people simply in the name of Jesus Christ. I feel like that's shorting God if we just look at it that way. If we just baptize in the name of Jesus, especially when we serve this triune God who is fully accomplishing the work of salvation. Right? When you think about it's the Father's plan accomplished by the Son, applied by the Holy Spirit. So we baptize in the name of all three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, that's what Jesus says in uh, Matthew 28. 
We'll look at that here in just a few minutes. But Jesus says, baptize disciples in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's what he commands. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So the mode matters, which is why we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Also, I want to talk about something else. If you'll notice also in our statement of faith, you see the word immersion. So we believe that the Bible teaches the appropriate method of baptism is being fully immersed in water. So we don't sprinkle, we don't take the cup and pour it over people. We don't believe that's taught biblically. Why? Well, again, let's think about the imagery we just used in this text in Romans 6, right? It pictures a burial and a resurrection. You don't get that by just sprinkling someone or pouring water over them. When they're immersed and they're totally under the water, that's the picture you get of a burial. And then the person is raised to this new life in Christ Jesus. You don't get that from sprinkling. If you ask any biblical scholar, it's pretty much agreed upon that the early church baptized by immersion. There was no sprinkling. There wasn't people taking cups and pouring it over people. That's not really even much of a debate now. It is uh, fully agreed on, or for the most part, fully agreed on that the early church practiced baptism by immersion. And where do we see that in the Bible, right? We Again, I wanted to build a case here based on what we see in the text. Well, a couple of texts that help us understand this reality. John chapter 3, verse 23. It says this, John, referring to John the Baptist, also was baptizing at Enon near Salim. Why? Because water was plentiful there. Now, if John the Baptist is just sprinkling people or pouring water over them, why does he need an abundance of water? Right? He could have taken a jar and probably baptized a thousand people if he was just sprinkling them. Why does he need an abundance of water unless he plans to immerse people fully? Right? Also, another text we can look at is the text in Acts 8, and this is a very popular encounter. And we'll come back to this again in a little while. Uh, Acts 8 is the encounter with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he doesn't quite understand it. And Philip comes, and he helps him understand what he's reading. And Acts 8, verse 36 says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both, and here's the key phrase, went down into the water, Philip and eunuch, and uh, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So it really only makes sense that they went down into the water because Philip planned to baptize him by immersion, to fully immerse this young man into the water. See, if he was just going to sprinkle him or pour water over him, he could have gotten a cup and dumped it on the man. He never would have had to exit his chariot. So it would make sense to me from the text that he's being baptized by immersion. In fact, the word in the original language means, the word for baptism, means to immerse or to dip. So it would make sense to do it by immersion. Now, I know that was a longer section, and some of you in here may just say, well, why does that even matter? Why does it even matter? And again, I think part of the significance of this act is derived from the mode of baptism. I think the mode matters because of what it means. Again, what it represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so much of that is lost when a person isn't immersed through baptism. 
I believe that's what the text is showing us. I believe that's what the church did. I believe that's biblically, a biblically faithful practice. But again, what's important in all of this is to understand what baptism means, to understand the greater significance of it, to understand it's not salvific, but to understand it is a visual representation of the gospel. It is telling the world, I have been saved by Jesus Christ. I have a new life in Christ. So that's what it means. That's what it represents. So then the second question would be, well, why do we, why do, we do it? Why do we do it? So that's our second section would be, why do we baptize? And here's how I would answer that question. <laughs> it's really a simple answer. Baptism is commanded and ordained by Christ and given as an ordinance of the church. I'll say that again. Baptism is commanded and ordained by Christ and given as an ordinance of the church. So maybe you're here this morning, you've been following Jesus for quite some time. Maybe it's been years. Maybe it's been a couple of months that you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You're a born-again believer, and you're wrestling through this reality. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you're like, man, I, I, I kind of want to get baptized. I don't know if I should. Kinda, what, what should I do here? Well, I want to give you a little bit of motivation to be baptized. Here's your motivation. Christ commands it. Christ says for us to do it. What other reason apart from Christ commands it do you need to be baptized? Right now, you may say, well, where do we see that in the text? Where does Christ command baptism? And the most obvious place for us to look would be Matthew chapter 28. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me there quickly. Matthew chapter 28. It's a passage I'm sure most of us are familiar with. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. We'll read those for us. <clears throat> this is what it says. And these are the words of Jesus Christ. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, as we look at that particular portion of text, there's a main command there. And the main command is to make disciples. So everything in these verses centers around that action, that instruction from the Lord Jesus to make disciples. And Christ says in order to make these disciples, you need to do two things. You need to teach them and you need to baptize. So Christ is making it plain that baptism is essential or it's a necessary part of following Jesus. Again, it's not salvific, but it is commanded for believers. And we'll talk about this more in just a minute. But that is why in our statement of faith, it is referred to as Christian baptism. It is something Christians do in obedience to what Christ commands. Again, the fact that Christ commands that here, it's his time on earth is coming to an end and he's going to ascend. And he says, what, I, I've got a few minutes left. What do I want to tell these guys? He could have told them a lot of things. He tells them to baptize and to teach. That's what gives this command so much significance. It's a public demonstration that marks us off from the rest of the world. It's incredibly significant. 
This is not something to be done loosely or flippantly. That's why we're spending this time this morning to talk about this, to understand this. It's not some small or insignificant run-of-the-mill practice. It's not man-made. It's not instituted by the church. It's commanded by Christ our Lord. You've got to understand why this is so significant. That's why it matters so much. That's why it carries such great weight. See, baptism is ordained or ordered by Christ to be something we continuously practice as his people. We believe this is an ordinance that has not given, been given simply just to individuals, but it's been given to the church, to the body of Christ, not to individuals, but to the local church, the gathered body of Christ. See, we believe that as agents of Christ operating under his sovereign authority, affirming the profession of faith that members have made, one of the ways we do that is through the ordinance of baptism. So once a person makes a profession of faith, right, then we baptize them and we begin to hold them accountable to live according to the profession of faith that they have just made. And because of this, because of the significance of what it represents, we believe the ordinance of baptism is best administered within the context of a local church. Does that make sense? Right? So then we have that extra level of commitment and devotion. We've talked about that many, many times. So we believe it's best done in the local church. Now, I want to be clear here. I'm not saying if if you're here this morning, listen, and your dad baptized you in the river behind your house or you got baptized at summer camp, I am not saying that you're sinful or disobedient or that your baptism is illegitimate. That is not at all what I'm saying. I want to make sure that I'm clear on that. We just believe that baptism belongs to the gathered church, that it is an ordinance that God has given to the church. That's what we believe. See, I mentioned this a moment ago, and so we'll see different uh, texts that speak to this reality, but I mentioned a moment ago a pretty well-known encounter with uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And a lot of people will point to that, and they'll say, oh, see, well, Philip baptized the guy, and then he went on about his business. He didn't enter into membership into the church. He didn't stay with them. He wasn't added. He just went on about his business. You're right. He did. That is what happened. And I don't believe that Philip was sinning. I don't think he had gone rogue. Right? I don't think he was being disobedient. But again, a practice like that, I believe, isn't normative. It's more of the exception rather than the rule. Right? This dude went back to Africa and hopefully, hopefully started a church right? as a believer in Jesus Christ. For those of you that are here and you've taken the new members class, you've heard us talk a lot about the importance of membership and how we believe that baptism precedes membership. We believe that membership is this great covenant, this great commitment that we have as believers to one another, and that you really begin to inherit this family, right? That, so what baptism does, it not only it represents the union that you have with Christ, when a church baptizes you, now you have union with all of those witnesses and all of those individuals in that body, right? And there's now a mutual accountability, You've made a profession of faith that we've affirmed by uh, baptizing you publicly, and now we're responsible to continue this commitment to you. And that's where membership is so important. That's why we believe being baptized into membership should happen more consistently. And where do we see a great example of that? What appears to be people being baptized into the church? Well, Acts chapter 2 is a great example of this. And this is, again, right after uh, Paul, or excuse me, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2. He preaches at, at Pentecost. 
In Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 31, it says, so those who received his word, now what word is Peter preaching? He's preaching the gospel, right? He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says, those who received his word were baptized, and there they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So it sounds like they were added to something that day, right? Here's Peter and the apostles and the gathered believers together, and then they're baptized and they're added to something. They're committed to something. If you continue to read the rest of that encounter, it says they're added to this fellowship. They now have fellowship where they're breaking bread together. They're gathered around the word of God together, which sounds to me like a church, right? That they were added to this body together. And I believe this is important for holding people accountable to the profession of faith that they make, especially if we affirm it as a church. And if we even look back to the text here in Matthew 28, uh, Jesus says to be baptized first. So that is why we believe before a person enters into membership, they should be baptized. Again, let's look at the text in uh, Matthew 28. Jesus says to baptize them, then to teach them. So it appears that there's an order there, right? Like there's an order that you're baptized first. Once you make a profession of faith, Jesus says to be baptized. So we believe that's his first command. So why would you enter into membership, uh, this visual representation of the body of Christ, if you haven't first obeyed Jesus's first command to be baptized? So some of you, again, that have gone through the membership process or even going through it now, and we sit down and say, yes, we believe this person is born again. Yes, they've given their life to Jesus, but you haven't been baptized. We ask you to be baptized, right? We say, yes, you can enter into membership conditional upon your baptism. That's why we do that. Again, we believe if you haven't obeyed Jesus's first command to be baptized, why would you then enter into the body, right? It just seems like a natural order there. So again, in all of this, we realize why we must be baptized is because it's what Jesus Christ, the Lord, commands of his followers to be baptized. Again, it's not something we came up with. It's not a man-made philosophy. It's what Jesus instructs his followers to do. So again, if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do so. I would ask you first and foremost, what is keeping you from doing that? Why are you so opposed to it? And I know some people, right, have a fear of water, right? It can be scary or even being in the public eye in front of people, sometimes that can be a little nerve-wracking. I get that, right? But if Jesus commands it, I think we had best to heed and obey it. I think we ought to do as God's people what God commands of us. So finally, we'll look at question number three as we Towards the end of this discussion, number three is, who is it for? Who is baptism for? Who gets baptized or who should be baptized? And I would answer it this way. Again, very simple. Baptism is for believers. It is for those who profess faith in Christ. Who is baptism for? It's for believers. It's for believers. So again, if we go back to our statement of faith and the article on baptism, it states, we believe that Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer 
So we adhere to what is known as believer's baptism, right? And that just means we believe that a person makes a profession of faith, right? They place their faith in Jesus Christ, and then they're baptized, right? This is an act that is reserved for believers. We do not baptize unbelievers. They would only be taking a bath, and a really awkward and uncomfortable one at that. Right? Baptism is for believers, for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And where do we see that in the text? Again, we'll go back to this text I've referenced a few times. Acts chapter 2, here are the words of the Apostle Peter again. He says, repent and be baptized. He says first to repent. Well, what is repentance? It's looking to Christ in faith. It's turning from our sin and ourselves and turning to Jesus and believing in him. To do that first and then be baptized. Right again, another verse I just read, uh, Acts 2.41. They received the word that Peter preached. They received the gospel. So that means they believed and then they were baptized. We can look at an encounter in Acts chapter 8, and this is another encounter that may be familiar to a lot of people. It's with Simon the magician, right? Simon was a very popular individual because of the things that he could do, and people were following him and looking to him. And then it says in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 12, it says, but when they believed, and this is talking about the people who had been following Simon, but they saw what the apostles were doing and heard their teaching, And it says, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So it says they believed and then they were baptized, both men and women. Then verse 13 says this, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Again, it's clear that there's a consistent order here that you Exercise faith in Christ, and then you're baptized. Baptism is reserved only for believers. Now, for the record, I think this is worth mentioning here. This is something I think is just worth mentioning briefly here, but this is why we don't baptize infants. This is why we do not baptize babies, since they do not have the ability to profess faith in Jesus Christ. Now, again, if you're here and maybe you were baptized as a baby, or maybe you have family members or friends that are part of other denominations that do that, hey, I'm not here to knock them. I'm not here to make fun of them. I'm just saying that I don't see that in the text. That's not what I see when I look at God's word. I don't feel like that's being faithful to what the Bible teaches us about baptism, but there are those who advocate for infant baptism, and they'll look to certain texts, like, for example, in Acts 16 with the Philippian jailer. It says he received the word, right? And uh, he believed, and then him and his whole household uh, were baptized. But when you look at a text like that, you're having to make assumptions. You're having to assume that the man had babies in his house that they baptized, and the text simply does not say that. And one of the other arguments that people use is that baptism has now replaced circumcision, right? In the, under the old covenant where you had circumcision that was the sign given to God's people, we now have baptism that is the sign that's given to God's people, that you're under this new covenant of grace. And I could even almost get behind that, right? 
But what we're doing is we're ignoring certain realities about this covenant, that it's based on grace, not ethnicity. You're not born into some family. There's no external act that you could do that's going to put you in the good graces of God and help you become a recipient of the benefits of this new covenant. That's not how baptism works. It's not what it's about. Just a couple of texts to uh, explain this briefly. Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 through 27 is the Apostle Paul yet again writing, and he says this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, Paul's emphasis here is on our faith in Jesus Christ. He writes something very similar in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. He says this, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. He says we're raised through faith, through faith. And he says it's all the powerful working of God who also raised Jesus from the dead. Again, the, the, the point is, the, is essential here. It's, it's important that we understand it is through faith. We are saved. The act of baptism happens after a person demonstrates faith in Jesus Christ. That must happen first. So again, we believe it's only believers who should be baptized. Listen, we don't baptize newborns. We baptize the reborn. Amen? Amen. Okay, write that down. Those who by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, have been born again. Right? Baptism is a sign that Christ has given to those who would be his disciples. And it's to continue until the end of the age. It's something we are to practice continuously in the disciple-making process. Brothers and sisters, baptism is, again, what marks us off and sets us apart from the rest of the world. So it marks us as those that are in Christ Jesus. Again, this not only shows our unity with Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, but our unity with one another in the body of Christ. As we prepare to close our time, I hope that everyone here understands the greater significance of baptism, what is being communicated through the act of baptism hope is that we would all see the significance of the message that it preaches, and more importantly, the beauty of the Messiah that it demonstrates. Listen, we cannot save ourselves. No man can save us. No amount of religious rituals, no amount of good works could ever justify us before the Lord. It is only Christ Jesus who saves and that is the glorious reality that baptism speaks to. Listen, if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you haven't been baptized again, I want to encourage you to do so out of obedience and faith in Jesus Christ. I hope that as believers we have an appropriate understanding and reverence and esteem for what baptism means. Again, it is a beautiful sacrament, an emblem that declares our faith in the risen Savior. Why wouldn't you want to participate in that? Why wouldn't you want to demonstrate that to the world? Listen, if you're here this morning and maybe you're an unbeliever, 
I want to invite you right now to look to Christ in faith. That today can be the day of your salvation. He is an infinitely worthy and an infinitely glorious Savior. Listen, if we even go back to the text quickly, you don't have to turn there. It was uh, in 1 Peter 3, where Peter's making the comparison between baptism and uh, Noah and the ark and how God uh, brought them safely through the waters of the flood. There's a beautiful picture there for us. See, just as Noah and his family entered into the ark and they were saved from the flood, for those who enter into Christ, they safely pass through the waters of death into eternal life in this saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. That can be your reality this morning. Whosoever will, let him come. Let him come. I invite you this morning to look to this glorious Savior in faith, to be saved because he is infinitely worthy. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to fellowship and Lord just even the beautiful sacrament of baptism and what it means. Lord, I pray that we have the right understanding, that we understand what it represents, and that those here who may have never been baptized, Lord, would respond in obedience, would be excited, would be uh, delighting in the opportunity to demonstrate that faith to the world. Jesus, we thank you of the new life that we have in you, that we can walk in freedom, that we can live lives that bring glory to your name, that we have eternal and abundant life because of you. Jesus, thank you. You are a beautiful and glorious Savior. Thank you for all that you've accomplished on our behalf. Father, I ask that with the rest of the time, with the rest of our days, Lord, that we would just live in a way that brings glory to the name of Jesus. We thank you, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.